everybody, Eve Harrow, July 23rd, 2023, rejuvenation. Sorry about last week, it kind of got away from me, um, but I'm sure you were all just fine. It also is the fifth day of Av, 783, so we are deep into the nine days. Um, not usually tremendously auspicious for the Jewish people. As we are taping this, there is a tremendous demonstration going on for the people who are pro the reform, judicial reform in Tel Aviv. The people who are anti the judicial reform have been pounding the pavement already for a while. And um, I just, you know, I, I, th I believe, as many of you know, that we do need some form of judicial reform, but we also don't need to repeat some of the disasters of the past where the people are not together. Um, and so that has to be paramount, along with not giving in to a certain sector of the society having a major tantrum on the street, because that's not how democracy should be run. So once again, what I'm hoping and praying for all the time is wise leadership. We'll see where it goes. Spoiler alert, I have no idea. Um, next week, I am back in the States. This is for a long trip, 18 days. I'm going mm -hmm. to be in Englewood, Lawrence, Great Neck, the Hamptons, mm -hmm. New York City, wow. Sacramento, Los Angeles, and Aspen. And I don't think I missed anything. If you go onto my oh website, my though, you can see where I'll be. <laughs> my guest is already going, whoa. Yeah, it's a very busy trip, speaking in a lot of different places. And I would love to see any of you, some of you. So take a look at my website. You can see where I am. And when I get back to Israel, I'm going to so need wine trips. And that's exactly what I had planned, August 22nd and August 24th. Two incredible wine trips, one to the Binyamin area, one to the Shomron, it happens to be right when we're doing our grape harvest. That coincidentally is why we have the biblical holiday of Tuba Av, the 15th of Av right then. Used to be the fourth mm -hmm. festival. Discussion for another time. But those trips should be great. We have beautiful meals. It's like really high-end trips. We're going to visit jewelers and different wineries and fancy luncheons. And really to see that part of the country in a way that you've never seen it before. And hopefully you will. we will have what I love every summer is the uh, luggage compartment clinking on the way back to Jerusalem because people buy wine for the upcoming holidays. And just to enjoy, a lot of these wines have now won prizes in worldwide competitions up against non-kosher wines. It's not like they're up against, you know, I don't know, Monashevitz or something. They're up against some serious wines. And it's just, you just feel the blessing of the land. You just absolutely do. So if you're going to be in Israel, August 22nd, August 24th, come to one, come to both. If you weren't planning on being in Israel, I think this is as good a reason as any to come. So I'd love to see you here or when I'm in the States or both. That's also good. In the meantime, I have one of my favorite people, as you guys know already, Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman, whom I went to Egypt with and read his his stuff and whatever. He's just an amazing professor at Bar Ilan University and so much more. And I'm sure he will fill that in. But someone who also never rests, he has a new book out. On Echa, on Lamentations, and it seemed like this week was the week to do that interview about the book, because that is what we are going to be reading in a couple days' time. Rabbi Berman, thank you so much for joining me here again, still. It's always great to have you. Well, it's always a pleasure, even. And, you know, after that great intro, I, I want to come hear you in all those cities, and I want to go, I want to go on one of these wine trips. You, still, sure. you sold me, okay? Sold I don't know what's you. happening in the, in the listening audience. You sold me. Here we go. Okay, everybody. See, this is another reason to come on one of the wine trips. You get to talk to, to Rabbi Berman all day or some of the day or whatever, or at least make a l'chaim and clink some glasses. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so, you know, Israel is, is going through some uh, really tumultuous things, as you and I uh, both know. But um, in the meantime, it kind of sits on a long, long history of 
tumultuous times. And the book of Lamentations, well, first of all, let me ask you, why did you decide to write a book on Lamentations? Yeah, right. I think most people, uh, uh, you know, even most people who have had some exposure to this, to this safer, to this book, uh, usually it's Tisha B'Av night on the floor in Shul. Right. And uh, we kind of get through it, and it's kind of, you know, a litany of, um, of uh, horror scenes from, you know, one, one goes to the worst, to the next. And, uh, right, so, so what, why would anyone want to write a book about this? Uh, and it's because I see the book totally differently than I think what, we, what our intuitive sense of what it is. And I think it's a fascinating and a sophisticated uh, and timely book. So I know you've actually, you teach a course on this because I wasn't I able did. to take it. And I remember seeing it in the curriculum and it, right. when I was doing my master's, I'm like, oh, it doesn't work. So now I get, see, it was kind of cheating because I waited for the book to come mm-hmm. out and now I can interview you instead of mm-hmm. taking the course. But, um, mm-hmm. but, in, but in all seriousness, who, I mean, who wrote the book in your opinion? Yeah, right. Okay. So, so uh, uh, our sages say uh, that Yermiao, uh, Jeremiah wrote, 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 wrote the book. Um, scholars uh, aren't sure. The book itself doesn't say. Um, uh, there, the things to point to about that say in favor of Jeremiah is that, well, he was the big prophet at the time. There are an enormous number of terms and phrases in Echa that uh, are resonant with those found in, in, in the book of Jeremiah. So that might suggest a common, a common author. Um, but some, sometimes, uh, at least modern scholars, say the following things. There are things that, that are expressed in uh, Ahab that don't sound like Yirmiyahu. So, for example, at the end of chapter 2, we hear this voice speaking about the starving children in Yerushalayim. And that, that, that verse says the following. It says, Haragta biyoma pecha. You have slaughtered my children on the day of your anger. Tavachta lochamalta. You slaughtered without any pity. And it doesn't sound very Jeremiah-like. Mm-hmm. And also, some people point to the fact that we don't we don't have a full biography of Jeremiah from the eponymous book, the book with his name. But what we do know is that Yirmiyahu went down to Egypt together with many of the survivors of the uh, of the destruction. And his last prophecies, in fact, are said from Egypt. And then we tune out. We lose, we lose contact. We don't know. It doesn't say where Yermiao passed away. Did he come back to Jerusalem? Right. Maybe. Um, um, but Although we do know more about Yermiao, about Jeremiah, than we do about most prophets. Right? Like we oh, know yes. he was never married. He never established a family. Right? He kind of this devoted is, himself to the Jewish yeah. people completely. Well, yeah, I mean, part, you know, a good part of the book of, of, of Jeremiah is narrative about the things that he went through. So, yeah, we, we happen to know more about him than we do about other prophets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now the time period that we're talking about here, of course, is the end of the first temple. Uh, the date is more or less generally accepted as being minus 586 or that time period, the lead up to the destruction by the Babylonians, the exile of the Jews. Two Babylonians, and as you said, Jeremiah and some others going the other way after the murder of uh, of Gedalia. The you know, so mm-hmm. there's a, like a lot going on here in the land. But it, so you said that some of the book sounds very Jeremiah-like, and some of it does not. So your average biblical critic, which you are not, would say, well, then there's obviously more than one author. 
Well, perhaps. I mean, actually, what what most what me, let me give kind of an overview of Please. different views, different views of uh, of of of, of Afa. So, Chazal, uh, uh, the rabbis in the Talmud, they never refer to this book as Echa. They call it Kinot, literally Lamentations. Uh, and of course, Kinote is the name that we give that big compendium of laments that we read uh, all morning long on, on Tisha B'Av morning. And there's there's a kind of an interpretation going on there. When we say that Echa is Kinote, then that's telling us to read these as laments. By which I think we mean, when we speak about the keynote generally, uh, these are poetic uh, uh, creations that are, decide, that are designed to help the person who experienced you know, some calamity uh, unload, unload their woe, their travail, their, their, their fears, their despair, their prayer, their protest. Uh, and that is generally what a lament is. And that, in, in that way, that's certainly all the things that we call keynote, you know, in the little keynote books that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, are 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 of that of that genre. This is certainly how Chazal understood it, and I think this is the way probably most Jews who arrive in shul on Tisha B'av evening think about it. These are the first five keynotes that we are reading tonight, and then we mm-hmm. go on to the book of keynotes. But it's one it's one set of keynotes on to the next set of keynotes. Um, modern scholars have noticed several things that there seems to be a cacophony of voices at play in in Eicha. It's very, very difficult not only to, to, to identify a beginning, middle, and end in Eicha, but you seem to have all sorts of things going in different directions. I read the, the verses before that are probably the most bitterest expressions of anything against yeah. God in the entire Hebrew Bible. Yeah. And, and at the same time, you can have a verse as we have in chapter 1, verse 18, Tzadiku Hashem, Hifihu Mariti. Righteous is God, for I have rebelled against his word. Well, wait a minute. Is that the same voice, the same person mm-hmm. as the one who said that incredibly bitter thing? You slaughtered them. You had no pity on them. So what's going on here? And uh, most scholars will, will say today, this has certainly been the way in which most scholars have, have interpreted the book over the last 30 years, is that there is no one opinion in Eicha. What we have here is a cacophony of opinions that, if you will, if we can just bring it in in, 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 and look for a contemporary idiom, uh, if you take Jews after the Shoah, survive the Shoah, Mm -hmm. you know, even leaving aside the Jews that that perhaps had been raised religious and had and had left religion as a result, even if you take the Jews that, that remained religious afterwards and you ask them, so what do you make of what happened? If you ask 10 of them, you'll get 10 different opinions. Right. Theologically, what to do with it. Right. And so. God is cruel. Way, there is no God. This was right. man. We, so it shows how much we need God. Yeah. Or we don't know. Or, or, or there's, there's hiddenness. There's all, all sorts mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so many scholars say that the, the search for a, a clear theological message from Echa is, is doomed to fail because there is no one message. Nor of these scholars claim, nor is there any order practically to the book. Many scholars will say, yeah, you know, these verses could have been shuffled around and it all would have been the same because you can't find, forget about, forget about in, across the five chapters, in some of the chapters themselves, it's very, it seems very difficult to say what is, you know, if you were to read over any one of the chapters carefully, would you, beyond being able to describe, well, this and this and this happens, why? 
or to what end have the verses been put together in this particular order? So this is this is what leads many scholars to say, right, that you're, 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 you're barking up the wrong tree. There is no order. There is no one message. This is all just as the Chorban destroys physical reality, so too conceptual and theological reality is all destroyed and all that's left is confusion and voices. And that's what we're hearing here in Acre. That's been the take until now. You know, it's something that pops to my mind because I'm always, you know, bouncing back and forth in the times of the Tanakh till today because I think that nothing has happened that it, now that hasn't happened before and the Tanakh is mm-hmm. the most brilliant book in bringing that out is let's say for where I sit in what's called the religious Zionist camp, right? Where I put a Kedushah, I put a holiness in our coming back to the land. I have the very strong theological reasons for being here and for seeing Hashem in so many things that are happening. On mm-hmm. the other hand, there are a lot of Israelis who don't have that. They're here, okay. they're there doing, they're invested as much as I'm invested, maybe even more. Okay, but for them, this is just the place. This is a political reality. It's a place where Jews can be safe. It's a place where we can speak Hebrew. God is not part of the being Jewish is not a God thing. It that almost sounds like what you're saying is the debate of lamentations. Is it just like a a call to this is what happens when the Babylonians come in and destroy the temple for whatever reason? We'll talk about sin in a second. Or are there tremendous theological implications here about God's anger with us or our betraying him or whatever it is? I mean, do you do you also see some of that connection in some ways? Well, well, I, I think that there's very clear theological lines here and messages, mm-hmm. and there is a, there's a very deep and brilliant structure to what's going on here. Okay, so that's Let's hear that's it. kind of the contribution that I wanted to do. Okay, all right. So the, the first, so let me lay out a few things. Um, um, I'm sure all of us who have who have read uh, Eicha on the night of Tisha B'av have noticed that that the first four chapters, uh, at least in their form, are extremely well structured in that they all form. We call acrostics. Right. That means that the first pasuk is with an aleph, eicha yashvavada. That's aleph, and bet bachot tizkeh balayla. That's bet, and on and on. And the first four chapters all do that. So that's something that you miss, by the way, my listeners, when you read it in English. Just have to throw that in there because yeah. it's a, yeah. it's Hebrew, yeah, the Hebrew alphabet. Yeah. yeah. So clearly, this author structure is important to him. I'll say more than that. This probably many readers have never noticed. And that is that uh, chapter one, chapter two as well, uh, form a perfect chiastic structure. By that, mm-hmm. I mean the following, that we have a word in the first verse, and that same word will appear in the last verse. And we have a word in the second verse, and that same word will appear in the second to last mm-hmm. verse. And on and on and on. Okay, so the the first two chapters of of, of Eicha are both perfect acrostics, A to Z, as it were, or all at the top, and perfect chiastic structures. And I don't think that you find that anywhere else in the Tanakh. So it really it really stress it it, it strains uh, uh, to, to say to say that. The, the the poetics of the of 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 these poems are so perfectly structured, right. but the message and the content, nah, just all random. Yeah, uh, that yeah. doesn't fly. For me. That doesn't fly. For me. I, I think that the key here we need to know is the following thing, and I, I suspect uh, many of us have noticed uh, uh, at least some of this. And that is that in Eicha, 
you can see clearly that there are two dominant voices. What do I mean by that? One voice is the voice that speaks of Yerushalayim, mm-hmm. about Yerushalayim, in the third person. The opening verse, Echa Yashva Vadad. Oh, or woe, how she sits alone. She. Mm-hmm. The, the speaker is pointing to someone. He's pointing to Batsion, daughter Zion, speaking about her. Many of the verses speak about Yerushalayim or about daughter Zion. And then we have the verses of daughter Zion herself. The verses that speak of Yerushalayim in the first person. Um, uh, uh, when we have, for example, Al-Ele uh, Anibochia, uh, about all of these uh uh, uh and vitulotai my 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 uh my 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 sons my daughters uh my my eyes they they shed they shed tears uh and on and on or or uh uh uh, uh the last verse of of, of chapter two veribiti those that I raised that I gave birth to oivi chilam my my enemy has has uh, has consumed them, and so we have a voice that speaks about Yerushalayim in the first person. Okay, now the voice that speaks about Yerushalayim in the first person that is the collective figure of daughter Zion of Batsion. and the third person, the the speaker, the speaker that speaks of Yerushalayim in the third person. This, for now, we're going to call the narrator. Okay. Now, it's clear that this narrator and Batsion are not just two voices, but sometimes they speak to one another. Mm-hmm. So we see this especially in chapter two. So, for example, uh, maybe the most famous verse for those of us that, uh, that sing songs at Shalatudis, uh, when the narrator says to Batsion, pour out your heart. Uh, 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 in front of God, but many verses there when he says to her, "Kigadol uh, kayam shivrech," as great as the ocean is your shatteredness. Me your pa lach. Who is it that could possibly heal you? Mm-hmm. And there are many verses like that. So it's clear that what we have in Echa is a dialogue between these two characters. Okay. Now we have other works in Tanakh that are a dialogue between characters. For example. Think of the book of Job, Sefer Eov. Right. Okay? Eov is having a dialogue with his quote-unquote friends, those mm-hmm. that come to... Okay? But, but there, the difference between Eov and Echa is that in Eov, the lines of who is talking are very clear. Eov's theology is consistent throughout. And the friends' uh, theology, or, or, or theodicy, you know, how, they, how, how, how do we deal with all these bad things that happen to good people is consistent throughout. The problem is that in Eicha, it's very hard to see consistently who is Batsion. And it's a little difficult to see consistently what can we say about the author? What can we say about this narrator who is speaking of Yerushalayim? Mm-hmm. Okay? But that is, the, that is the opening step that we need to, to understand. That clearly, this is not just a lament pouring out. To do that, I don't need these two voices. I don't need them talking to one another. And so if we have a dialogue, then we have to look for something other than classically a kina element. We need to understand what it is that these two characters are talking about. Okay. okay. All right. 
Okay. Now I want us to put out, put aside our uh, Tanakhim, back up a little bit so we can try to understand what it is they might be talking about. I want to talk about the world around us, what we see around us. We see a strange phenomenon over and over that certainly baffles the mind. Think of the following social phenomena, which we are all familiar with. Uh, Holocaust denial. Right. Uh, Anti-vaxxers who say that the vaccines either don't work or they're dangerous. Or those that deny climate change, though it is so hot out, no matter where oh you my are, God. <laughs> it is hard to believe, but there are still people who will deny climate change. Uh, there are people who maintain to this day that the elections four years ago or three years ago in the United States were stolen, even mm -hmm. though there's been no proof to that whatsoever. Uh, what do all these have in common? Well, these, these are what social science, social psychologists say are expressions of um, belief persistence. This is where you have a group of people who have a view of reality that is entirely impervious to empirical truth. No proofs will shake them from their position. And uh, they maintain these positions because apparently there's something very deep-seated in their collective identity that will be threatened if they are forced to confront the empirical truth. And so, I mean, like I a type of cognitive dissonance. It just, yeah, I think you know, so. doesn't yeah. fit yeah, with collective, and it, and it goes mm -hmm. on and on. Like I heard, I heard recently uh, uh, an archaeologist doing excavations in Sobibor in the, ex in the extermination camp there, and he said, and he showed, you know, he, they pick up the the last belongings that they found right. there. Sometimes with names on them. And he says, we're doing this so that nobody will be able to say it didn't happen. But and there's plenty will. saying they it didn't say. happen. Right. They will say. They will say. And on and on, the same thing with, with anti-vaxxers and the same thing with, with uh, uh, election fraud and, and the same thing with climate change. We see it all around us. See it all around us. Mm -hmm. um, now, this is very relevant for Eicha. And let me explain why. In, in the book of Yirmiyahu, so we know... Anybody, you don't have to have ever really learned Yirmiyahu deeply, just reading the Haftarahs that we sometimes get right. uh, from Yirmiyahu. We know that Yirmiyahu was, you know, kind of bringing Hashem's word about what is what 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 Yerushalayim should expect if things keep up the way they were. And we know that that Yerushalayim, not only were they not listening to Yirmiyahu, but they had an alternative theology. It's what scholars call Zion theology. That is to say. Hashem loves us, the people of Zion. Hashem loves the city of Zion. Hashem loves the Mikdash, the temple in Zion. And Hashem loves the Davidic king in Zion. And if you're not on board with that, then you are the Apikoros, not us. It's very from. Now, yeah. to my mind, Eve, the most shocking thing in the entire Tanakh, in the entire Tanakh, is what happens, or more to say, what doesn't happen, after the Chorban. Because after the Chorban, after the destruction, we would have expected that when all of Yirmiyahu's prognostications came true to the last letter, totally against what they had said, they would come to him and say, oh, Yirmiyahu, you were right, mm -hmm. and we were wrong. And they would beat their breasts in, in confession and contrition and ask him the way forward. And nothing of the sort happens. Just the opposite. They scorn him. Yeah. And then when, when, the, when there's a new uh, governor installed, Gedalia, the loyalists to the king murder him because apparently they felt, well, the only person who's allowed to lead in Jerusalem is, is from the Davidic line. Mm -hmm. 
put differently, what we see here is that even after the Korban, the residents of Jerusalem are still holding fast to their theology. It's Korban denial. That's what it is. Korban denial. How could they deny it? It happened. Well, we see from the opening time that, that, that daughter Zion speaks in Eichel. The first time, I want to read a short half a verse. It sounds beautiful. It sounds like something that any of us could perhaps say if, if God forbid, something happened to the Jewish people. She says, Re'e, this is Parakala, this is chapter 1, verse 9. Re'e Hashem et onyi, oh God, notice my suffering. <laughs> because the enemy has prevailed. Now, think about that. When she says, hello, God, hello, notice me, then she's implying that somehow whatever happens here, God didn't notice. God was away. That's her take on things. And why? Why was the temple destroyed? By what she says? Because the Babylonians had a good day. Because they were the stronger ones. In other words, she is in La La Land. She believes that she still has a direct connection to Akash Baruch Hu, to God. She believes that God loves her. And she believes that, the, that, the, that the, the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem was simply because the Babylonians were stronger that day. No sense of God actually sent these people, of her responsibility. She is totally in this cognitive dissonance, as, as, as you said, and in La La Land. And now we can get to what Eicha is about. In my humble opinion, what we have happening in Eicha is that there are two figures. There is a narrator who is none, none other than Yirmiyahu. If it's not by name, then it is a character who is given the authority of Yirmiyahu and who has the theology of Yirmiyahu. And he, it's his job to, as a kind of pastoral mentor, to work with Daughter Zion, collective representation of the survivor community, to get them back on track, to make her realize to wake up and smell the coffee. It's not just that the Babylonians were stronger. And you can't just turn to God and say, well, you love me, so come, come save me. You must realize your own agency. You must realize that God, this kind of Santa Claus vision that you have of God, is totally off. God is the one who brought the destruction. And so that's going to be totally shattering for her. And then he's going to have to help her pick up the pieces. And that is what Eicha is about. There's a series of dialogues between these two figures in which the narrator, Jeremiah, is working with daughter Zion to get her to realize the true theological perspective of what happened. And then when she's, her, her delusion about what God is all about is utterly shattered to help her pick up the pieces. That's how I see it. Wow. So there are so many things to, to comment on here. So what you're saying is that the Chorban comes as a direct result of the people leaving God. So God leaves us. I mean, I did a... Um, I did it, I think they're playing it again, Mizrahi, for Tishav Ba'av, like a little film, in Shiloh. And one of the things that Jeremiah says when they say to him, Hashem's never going to destroy Jerusalem, and he's never going to destroy the temple, which the first temple was called Beit Hashem. It wasn't even called the temple. It's called the house of God. And Jeremiah is saying to them, why don't you like go up the road a little bit to Shiloh and see that he already did it there. That's what the tabernacle was. This has already happened. So you're saying that there's a direct line between the people sinning. I don't know another, how another word to use as a general term. Yeah. And yeah. God's wrath. Direct. Mm -hmm. 
That's how yeah. you that's how you read this. Sure. Okay, yeah. now but this opens up a lot of things here in terms of what you just mentioned, for example, the Holocaust, right? If we want to connect mm-hmm. lamentations to virtually every horrible things that, that's happened to the Jewish people, which is what we do. Okay. The ninth of Av yep. is not just the sadness over the first destruction. It's the sadness of the second destruction. It's a lot of other, the Inquisition and Crusades and a lot of other horrible things that have happened to the Jewish people kind of all come together on this day and we mourn so many catastrophes, starting with the sin of the spies. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here intentionally. And I'm also going to ask you just to, you know, in a minute, how Christians pick this up in terms of Mm. the sinning aspect as maybe different from how the Jewish sages Mm. would have interpreted this. So, but you could say, let's say a Holocaust survivor, but so many good people were killed because maybe that's what happened in Jerusalem also, that even the people who were worshipers and monotheists and did everything right, got caught up in the general, you know, punishment of everybody that it wasn't pinpoint you're bad. So you're going to get punished. You're good. So you're not. All right. Is there a national thing going on here that we're all going, you know, no no matter what, if the majority rules and the majority is bad, we're all going down. So, you know, it's inevitable that when we read Achab and we think about the Korban, uh, especially the first of the first base of Mekdash, that we can't help but think of, you know, our own time and uh, events that have befallen our people not so long ago. Um, the, The important difference, I think, is that the Tanakh claims that truth was available, and that the proper perspective was available, and that it was deliberately ignored. Uh, and so therefore, in an authoritative way, the author of Eicha can say, but I have the right, as the author of Eicha, presumably, if, it's, if it is in fact uh, Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, to say, I am therefore also uh, 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 empowered and authorized to make the, the authoritative statement of what our response should be following the Korban, which I take to be Megillat Echa as a kind of uh, staging, literally staging, putting on a performance for the people who survived the Korban, having this debate between daughter Zion and Yirmiyahu to help them say, ah, that's where he wants us to get to. Okay? Mm-hmm. We don't have that same, that same uh, clarity with, yeah. regard, with regard to the Shoah. We, had, we did not have prophets beforehand who were telling us what exactly needed change. We did not have prophets who were being rejected. And we do not have prophets after the Shoah either to tell us exactly what it is that we're meant to do with it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a part of the conundrum of the modern day state of Israel. Yeah. You know, and a lot of yeah. the, I mean, ultimately, I think probably a lot of what's going on today is religious tensions, pro, against, how people see God yeah. in this picture. Uh-huh. Yeah. Was the Six Day yeah. War a miracle or was because our pilots were phenomenal? Or for some of us, yeah. a combination of both. Right. Okay. But you're seeing right. Lamentations as kind of preparing us. Like, is it, was it just written for that time? Okay, because we have the perspective now of 2,700 years, 2,600 years after, and all the calamities have been falling us since, which Lamentations still fits in very well. We can read it and still weep. But they just right. have that one, at least that's the big one at the time. Right. So right. It, was this written for them, and then we kind of carried it through? Or do you think that this I, was written for yeah. all time? So, okay, so, so <clears throat> you know, clearly when Fazal say that these are keynotes, laments, I think that they understood them as as laments that were, you know, originally written as laments and for all time to be given over to 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 Am Yisrael. 
you know, famously, Echad never mentions the Babylonians. You, Babylonians. Hard, if, you did, if you didn't know that this was about Babylonians, you wouldn't even know that it was about Babylonians just from the text itself. Um, I will say this, that, that um, although, you know, we take it as a given that this is something that is done by Jews the world over on Tisha B'Av night, sitting on the floor of the shul and reading Eicha, the fact of the matter is, is that there's no source for doing that in the Talmud. This is a rather late custom that begins maybe in the 8th or ninth century, something like that. That seems to be the earliest sign of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, I wonder whether, uh, 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 you know, even initially, I mean, the word kina doesn't appear anywhere in Eicha either, lament or lamentation. So, so my, my own personal feeling is that Eicha was initially written for the purpose that I said, primarily for an audience of, of 6th century BCE Judean uh, survivors of the show of the Shalav, the Choban of, uh, of the time, uh, and later was appropriated uh, as as laments, as 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 you know, compositions of woe and travail to be to be recited. I think, though, Eve, that even if we uh, 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 interpret Eicha the way that I'm suggesting, that its primary purpose was to help people at the time uh, understand the the true situation theologically. I think that there are really important lessons uh, for our time as well that come from from this book. Um, one of my favorite parts of of, of Eicha, you know, favorite just I mean in terms of analyzing, none of it's none of it's terribly happy. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. Um, is it, the last chapter, chapter five. Chapter five is different. Parakeh is different. Parakeh, it's not an acrostic, but that's just a formal thing. But Parakeh doesn't have any dialogue. It's one consistent voice throughout. Zuchor Hashem Mehayalanu. Remember what we had. Is it is it the collective speaking? Maybe. Is it the author speaking? Maybe. But it's only one voice, and it's really it's a tefillah that is uh, uh, for some sort of restoration or redemption. And the most famous pasuk of Parakeh, Hashiveinu Hashem Elecha, Venashuva Kadem. Bring us back to you and restore our days as of old, okay? Now, what's really, really fascinating to me, and I think therefore so, ins- and also so instructive for our time, is that the fact is that across the Tanakh, we actually have three chapters, three poems, three prayers, in which someone is writing situated, as is the author of Eicha, in Yerushalayim, after the Chorban, and turning in prayer to God to ask for some sort of redemption, as we have in the last chapter of Eicha Parakeh. The other two places are in Tehillim. Not all of Tehillim, you know, is written by David Amelech right. early on. There's many periods and many voices. Uh, but the two chapters of Tehillim, which also exactly the same thing, someone living in Yerushalayim after the Chorban, lots of suffering, and turning towards Hashem to ask for some type of redemption. This is uh, um, is more Ayin Dalit and Ayin Tet, seventy four and seventy nine, okay. And so many many of the psukim in those mizmorim have become famous parts of our tefillah. But there is a chasm, there is an enormous gap between the theology of those two prakim in Tehillim, how should we turn towards God after the korban, and the theology of Eicha. And it's a theological chasm. That, that is important for us to, to, to understand today. And I'll explain what that can Please. Is. 
When you look at those two uh, uh, chapters of Tehillim, Ayin Dalit and Ayin Teh, you see the following things. Number one, they are flush, full of references to, I would say, um, um, terms of endearment about Israel. Meaning, the author refers to Israel as Chasidecha, your righteous ones. Avadecha, your servants. Adatcha, your people. Horecha, your turtle dove. You know, and even like right. a lovey-dovey type, type, type of thing. Uh, uh, Yaakov, you know, chosen Jacob, and on and on. Which we would say, well, yeah, you know, that makes sense. You know, when we turn to a Kaddish Baruch, we want to remind him of how much he loves us. Right. And in those, in those two chapters, there will be many references to, I want you, Hashem, to look. Look at what the Goyim are doing. Look at what they're doing to you, to your land, to your Mikdash, mm-hmm. to your name. And there will be many references in those two prakim of Tehillim. And look how cruel they are being to us. And finally, you will find in those two prakim calls to Hashem, take out vengeance against them. Most famously, the line that we have from the Haggadah on Seder night. Pour out your wrath to the heathens that do not know you. That's from those, those Mizmorim. Mm-hmm. So sum up, what we have there are, I would say, notes that for us seem intuitive for the occasion to remind Hashem of how much he loves us, to point to the desecration of his name and his temple because of what has happened, pointing to the cruelty of the heathens against us, and many calls for revenge. The author of Eicha Perakei, chapter 5, is also situated in Jerusalem, also after the, the destruction, also seeking a redemption, and he has none, none of those things that I just mentioned. He never refers to Israel with the term of endearment. He never points to and says, hey, did you notice what happened to your temple and to your name and, 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 and to all the things that you hold as holy? Well, they've all been desecrated. Take note of that. And there's no call for, 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 for vengeance. Which makes yeah, sense, you... which makes sense if, if God was the one who wreaked all this. Okay, exactly. What's happening here in Echa is, which I, I call chapter 5, prayer purged of Zion theology. In other words, the author of Echa wants to show B'nai Israel how to dive into a Kaddish Baruch Hu after the Chorban without falling back on all the errors that led to the Chorban in the first place. Well, God loves us. So all I have to do is, stand, is, is sit here and say to God, we are your righteous ones. We are your servants. We are your turtledom. And all I have to do is point to a Kaddish Baruch Hu and say, your beloved Mikdash, look what they did to it. That's all wrong. That's what got them messed up in the first place. Instead, what Parakeh is about in Eicha is about our responsibility. When he says, twice, he says, uh, Our forefathers began the process of sin, and we are, we are reaping those, uh, the, 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 the punishments that are there. And when they say further on, What really gets us is that we have sinned. That's what Eicha wants to teach. Responsibility. responsibility not just how much god loves us no. not just how much it's so much easier eve for us to think all day he loves us he loves us we have a greet we are chosen he loves us 
And that can get us into trouble sometimes because it, 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 it takes away our, our, uh, our own sense of our responsibility. And, and the contract that we have with Hashem, that there are exactly. certain things that we need In to do. In other words, right. To deserve right, that love. Brief, a covenant has two sides to it. Right. We like to focus on the first side. God unconditional love. Unconditional love, right. Right. That's right. right. Almost exactly. like an anthropomorphizing to exactly. some degree of exactly. Hashem. Exactly. Like he's exactly. the father, and so he'll forgive us no matter what. Right, right. that's right. That's right. And this is why I, I, I kind of did a review of the various Yutim, uh, uh, liturgical prayers, that were written by various rabbis following the Shalom. It's tough. It's a tough charge. What are you wow. going to do? What, what, what do you write? And and I would say that most of them are much more like the ones in Tehillim. You know, we love you. You should love us. You know, right. your coming were destroyed. And very, very little in those team about, oh, we sinned. Like that's, that's just, it's just too big to say. Mm -hmm. We have a tough time saying that. A very mm -hmm. tough time saying that. Wow. Very tough. So to get back to what I mentioned a few minutes ago, how do Christians view this? And right. the sinning so, and the covenant and all of that. Okay, so um, 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 from what I've what I've from what I've read, I will say this: so, you know, uh, uh, the Catholic Church, uh, uh, they actually used uh, lamentations until about the mid fifties. Oh, I forgot the name the name of the of that ritual during during Holy Week that they have with a with a T. But basically, it was it was like this: the the destruction of the of the base of Mikdash is taken by the Catholic Church to be a metaphor for the crucifixion, mm -hmm. and they would have this service where where um, I mean, you ask me what, what Christians do, so I'm, I'm giving it to you. And so I, I mean, I hope that for our Christian viewers, that this will be uh, edifying. Um, uh, and and there would be this service in, in the Catholic Church, uh, I think on, on on the Thursday night going into Friday of Holy Week. Where they would read various passages of Eicha and interpret all of the, the the terrible things that are happening as the crucifixion, and minute by minute, almost hour by hour, the lights of the of the church building would be extinguished until it was complete pitch dark, mm -hmm. and then they would read passages from elsewhere about about the uh, the, the about the rise the rise of Jesus. Wow! So so that that is how that is how the Catholic Church dealt with it. Um, Protestant uh, uh, thinkers and Protestant writers, you know, it's a tough book. There isn't a whole lot that's out there. I have read some modern Protestant uh, 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 writers who find, as I think many of us as Jews also, uh, um, there's a certain liberation precisely in the, the, the bitter uh, accusations against God that we find in chapter two. That is to say, what we have in chapter two is that uh, 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 the narrator, Yirmiyahu, lays out clearly, God did this to you, 27 ways, literally 27 ways. Boom, 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 did this, 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 everything. Everything you held dear, you thought you were Tiferet, Israel, the glory of God, boom. You thought the temple was his footstool, boom, and on and on, which has to be shattering for her. Uh, I, I'm reminded, I was once uh, in attendance at an academic conference, Bible scholars. I was at a dinner. And I overheard the following conversation. One Bible scholar says to, to, to the fellow opposite him, you know, I, I don't believe in God. And the other guy says, you know what? Me either. And the first one says, 
But I'll tell you this. If I did believe in God, I would be very angry at him. And the second guy says, me too. Okay? And I will tell you that, that, that uh, 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 psychologists of religion did a study a few years ago that came up with something quite remarkable. They did a study of religious attitudes amongst patients in a hospital ward for chronic pain, God forbid. People who are just in pain all the time. Oh, all the time. Nightmare. God forbid. Okay? What they found was is that the, the, the patients who were the angriest at God were also the patients most likely to say that they don't believe in God. And if you say to me, but that's illogical, I will say to you that uh, logic ends where pain begins. Okay? Wow. And I think, I think that Yirmiyahu, the author of, of, of Eicha, well understood that when he shatters daughter Zion's theology, and instead of God being benevolent and smiling and Santa Claus, God is the one who causes the, the starvation of her children and everything else. But there's no opportunity to speak to her about tshuva, about repentance, about her, her responsibility. She ain't there. There's not a place to hear that. People sometimes in that level of pain, there's two options. Either they can be very angry at God or they abandon God. And so Yirmiyahu sets up a model in chapter 2 that ends with her being very angry at God. You killed them, my children, on the day of your wrath. You slaughtered. You had no mercy. J'accuse. And the chapter ends with that. Not with censure about Tabatzion for speaking that way. No tshuva. It just ends with her anger. In a certain way, what Yirmiyahu is saying is, I'm creating space for you to be angry at God, and that's Okay, because we all know in our own relationships at home, it's much better that my wife or my kids, whoever it is, should yell at me at the top of their lungs. That's much better than just walking out and not talking to me at all. Right. And that's what he wants. He wants to make sure that Batsion, when he has shattered her delusions about God, will not walk out. And therefore, allowing her to express her pain gives her agency, it allows her to process her feelings, uh, to engage, and it becomes an active coping strategy. And, and I it maintains the relationship. There's yes. no relationship if you abandon. Right, right. And so I've, I've read some, some uh, uh, modern Protestant scholars who've said, this is an important message for Christians as well. Because Christians, these writers say, are often you know, raised to believe, listen, God loves you and God is benevolent, and that's, that's the totality of it. But sometimes our reality doesn't seem to fit with that. The, 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 the hand that we've been dealt doesn't seem so compassionate, no. doesn't seem so fair, seems quite cruel, and we are angry. And so some, some of these writers have said, listen, we need to appropriate this. This is important. It's important for people to be able to be angry at God. There has to be a space for that. Maybe that's not the final step, but it's definitely a step. And hmm. so I think this is all, all of this is relevant, is relevant today. For us on an individual level, and I think especially on a collective level. What, by my reading, what, what Eicha Lamentations is about is about this problem of belief persistence, of having a, a, a kind of a, a, an interpretive lens on the world that is impervious to any empirical evidence to the contrary. And, you know, I think, Eve, of, of, of the, the things that you mentioned at the outset of, of our podcast. Uh, that, that are going on in this country. And what scares me the most is the kind of the, the totality of the arguments. 
My side is entirely the sons of light, and the others are the sons of darkness. darkness. The point is there's no point talking to them because they can never change. Right. And this is what's scary. You know, on the particulars about this issue, there are probably a million possible compromises in the middle. Yeah. But when you have the view that everything that I believe is is 100% right, and everything everyone else believes is 100% wrong, that's the problem. That, I would say, is what Book of Lamentation says brought about the destruction of the first temple. Mm-hmm. Well, if your belief system is who you are, it's this is a life or death situation. Sure, yes. And I think for everybody in this country who has strong feelings mm-hmm. about this one or the other, that is the case. Right. That is absolutely the case. And that's, they're fighting for their lives. Literally, yeah. that's how they're feeling. Yep. yep. That they're Both fighting sides. for their lives. Yep. yep. So, yep. I mean, I, I just have to mention b- before I let you go that, of course, it's 18 years now since... Um, the what I consider one of the tragedies of our generation, which is, of course, mm-hmm. the expulsion mm-hmm. from Gush Katif, the destruction mm-hmm. of the homes and lives of 9,000 Jews, leading to a Hamas state on our southern mm-hmm. border. And you would expect, mm-hmm. as you mentioned a few minutes ago, if there was okay. some kind of understanding that, mm-hmm. oh, I was wrong, like uh, like what we have in Lamentations, okay? Mm-hmm. I thought this wasn't, right. wasn't going to happen. It did happen. So now I have to reconcile myself to the fact that I was wrong because events have shown that I was wrong. And then there's so many people, though, who will say, no, it was still a good move. And the fact that Hamas can shoot willy-nilly into the country, it was still a good move. All right? It's like, hello, what is it going to take for you to understand that we made a mistake? I know it's a much smaller, much more of a, more of a microcosm, obviously, than the destruction, not just, of course, of the first temple, which was bad enough, but of the whole polity, of the whole first temple period yeah. and independence. I mean, it was everything. It wasn't just the building that went down. It was everything that went with no hope at the time that it was ever going to come back. Now we know that it did. But they probably thought that was it. They're going into exile, and that's all she wrote. Judea was around for a few hundred years, and like like every other nation state at that time, had its time and then left the world stage. So, you know, here we sit, and here I do want to end with a positive, because here you and I sit in that reborn Judea, in that reborn mm-hmm. Israel, with all mm-hmm. its fractiousness and craziness and... and um, both sides are waving Israeli flags and still many people will right. be fasting on Thursday and reading lamentations. And many people are understanding the difficulty of this time. And so um, I'm just going to pray that we don't make the same mistakes that we made in the past. And no one's going to write a modern version of lamentations that we learn Amen. the lessons that are all around us and understand where Hashem fits in all this. He's not like a sidebar to call up when we feel like it. Um, mm-hmm. but very much part and parcel of everything that's happening here today. And may we deserve the state that, you know, and the country and the people that, that we all, you know, want so desperately to have in, mm-hmm. in so many mm-hmm. ways. So mm-hmm. uh, that's my call to Hashem. Please help us. <laughs> we are still here and he brought us home. So right. anyway, thank you so much, Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman, for tremendous insights. And I can't help but think, and I know you a little bit, you know, because we were in Egypt together and, mm-hmm. and interviewed you before, that you're uniquely placed to write a book like this. Uh, also because as an academic and understanding, like, how the book is written, let's say, you know, from, from how it's built. Um, and, but also as, you know, as a rabbi, as someone who's very steeped in the knowledge of the Bible and of theology. And so perhaps you were really, you know, here at the right time to be able to 
to cast a different eye on a book that so many of us have been reading for hundreds of years yeah, um, yeah. and maybe give, you know, give us a little insight from your particular perspective, from your education, from your life's work, from your life's journey. And I think that that's really uh, awesome. And, uh, and I okay. thank you for all your hard work and for sharing it with all of us. Okay, my great pleasure, and uh, let's pray for peace for Jerusalem. Amen. This should be the last ninth of Av that we fast. It should turn into a day of joy somehow, somewhere. All right, everybody, thank you so much. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network, and so really honored again to have Rabbi Dr. Joshua Byrne with me. Suggest um, that you pick up Lamentations and uh, pick up his book and really uh, it's a, it's very, it's not going to be like, a, a, it's not a rom-com, let's put it that way. <laughs> it's a tough book, but it has its place in our library and in our lives. And may all of you just be well wherever you are, just wishing for only good things for my people and for all people around the world and setting off um, your way and maybe you'll come this way. So thanks to Ben and to Tabitha for putting out this show and I will be back next week. Take care, everybody, and goodbye for now. The Land of Israel Network is your connection to Israel and the Jewish world. Listen to our show hosts, Ari Abramowitz, Jeremy Gimpel, Eve Harrow, Josh Haston, Mike Foyer, Yishai Fleischer, and more. Keeping you up to date on news, politics, and spirituality. That's the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com. Broadcasting the truth and beauty of Israel to the world.